Today, a story about a school and how some other schools failed some students over and over again. I used to have this history class in one of the vocab words was reservations. And like a bunch of these kids just didn't know what it was or like the definition of a reservation. And it's just like I have lived on a reservation most of my life. That's Precious Traversy. She's 17 years old. Her brother, Matthew White Mountain, is 16. When I went to school, four out of seven of my classes were substitutes, which I didn't learn or do any work because I couldn't because they were substitutes, which like weren't really teaching. And their sister, Alana LeBeau, is 17 too. I was bullied for how dark I was and I was never called like Native American. They thought I was black or Mexican and like they would make so many racist jokes about it. Matthew loves skateboarding. Alana loves reading. And Precious, she loves hanging out with her family. They're the kind of siblings who are also best friends, laughing and joking the whole time we talk to them. We met them at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, just outside of the biggest town, which is actually a pretty small town of 569 people, according to the 2020 census. It's called McLaughlin. It was a Thursday afternoon, and they left school to come talk to us. We sat on the dirt floor of a domed structure facing each other. The air smelled like cedar from all the fresh wood around us, and you could see bright blue sky through an opening in the roof. Outside, the wind was kicking up dirt and dust everywhere. But inside, it was warm and peaceful. The serenity of the space didn't quite match the stories we heard from the kids about all the schools they'd been to in communities around South Dakota, on and off the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River reservations. A lot of Dupree kids, they like really think because they live on the res that they have a right to make fun of Native Americans and stuff. So like recently they made a video of them dancing outside a gas station like just making fun of us. Down in Butte, everyone's like, they're in that mind frame of like, they're just stuck there and there's like, there's no good on the outside world or on the reservation just because how they've been treated in their life and what they've seen. During ball, a lot of Native Americans um, struggled to play it in Dupree because they were being harassed by white people and white parents because they were better than their white kids. A Native American can't be better than a white kid or else they just get sat on bench. Both of these schools are on the reservation. Dupree High School has an enrollment of about 100 students. Around 87% of those are Native, and 10% are white. So being at a majority Native school didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, they were getting bullied on the reservation and off, too. But maybe worse than that is the indifference these kids said they experienced from the adults around them. Alana remembers one teacher. And like she handed us these big old Lakota books and she was like, pick 10 words and write the definition out and then just leave it on my desk. So we did all that and then she just like, she looked at it and she counted like how many papers were there and she just like threw them away. Like didn't bother to look at the words we wrote. She just counted to make sure we did it. Going back more than a hundred years, education for native kids has been like this, which brings us to this question. If you've tried many, many schools, and they all suck, where do you go? I'm Christina Kala. I'm Sequoia Carrillo. And this is Code Switch. From NPR. It's a warm, sunny day. 
You could paint the whole scene with mostly yellows and browns and bright blue for the sky. And just outside McLaughlin, down this dirt road, well, actually, there's, there isn't a road at all. It's just dirt. Um, <laughs> there's this big brown mound jutting out of the earth. A brown mound that will soon have a neighbor. So this bevel is our mark. I'm a producer on Code Switch. I'm an editor on the Education Desk, but you might have heard me on here a few times before. And a few months ago, I heard about this school that was being built on Standing Rock. It's a direct descendant of one that was started during the pipeline protests that got national attention a few years ago. And I thought, given it was all about education, Sequoia would be the perfect person to report this story with me. I was obviously immediately hooked, and off we were to the Dakotas. Okay, it took a little bit more than that, but after a few layovers, we made it to Bismarck, North Dakota. And from there, we drove two hours south down a two-lane highway to a windy, grassy 40 acres of land on Standing Rock to meet some people who were trying to build that better school. Literally. Set it down. They're building an earth lodge, a traditional dome structure of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes. And community members from all across the reservation, adults and kids, are helping to build a second one for the Miniwichoni Defenders of the Water School. Miniwichoni, by the way, that means water is life in Lakota. And when it's finished, it will be the site of a brand new school with the goal of transforming how kids like Alana, Precious, and Matthew, Lakota kids, experience education. Eventually, they'll have these earth lodges built and students aged 12 to 19 attending their middle school and high school. But when we visit, it's not quite there yet. So let me set the scene. There's open fields almost as far as the eye can see. McLaughlin is off in the distance. And then there's this one earth lodge and just a ton of construction equipment. Standing outside, it's windy and dusty. Between that and trying to not stare into the sun while talking to folks, it's a whole thing. This isn't a game. I felt like I was in a dance with the wind. I just just kept moving my body with it. Uh Uh-huh. We were fighting the elements. And while that's happening, this group of guys is scoping out the construction site. We're doing good and getting paid to do it. How do you, you can't beat that. They've leveled the dirt in front of us, so there's this big, flat square of earth. The construction site itself is a lot of cedar beams right now. There's ones over there where they've burned the bottom, which is a practice they do to keep bugs off when they stick them in the earth. And we've got two... Tractors? They weren't tractors. They were like plows, like like little earth okay. movers. <laughs> They're called skidsters. We've been informed. Skidster. I will never forget that word. And the reason that we care about what a skidster is is because Precious was driving one right in front of us. I'm working part time. <laughs> <laughs> just lost my job. Part time. This 17-year-old girl, literally being a boss shifting some logs from one side of the site to the other. And she looked so at home behind the wheel of this heavy machinery. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was a lot more scared than she was. Oh my gosh, same. 
Everyone on the site was so cool, and they are all like family, so it's a very safe place. Some of them actually are family. Precious's uncle is leading the build. And yeah, like Sequoia was saying, everyone is so supportive. They're guiding her, they're telling her what to do. That's the whole atmosphere of the construction site. Yeah, we were standing off to one side of the site, chatting, holding our microphones, and this guy, Jody Hunt, came over and just started reciting poetry. Definitely one of my favorite parts of our two days on the work site. Hey. Are you ready? Yeah. I got one for you. Okay. Okay. Here's a place separated by race, held together by pride, where the last warrior rode his last ride. A place where hate is reconciled by respect for prophesized fate. It was said long before, but most can't relate. Wait. Life up south for most is clear. The end of the trail ended here. To leave these boundaries instilled in our head is fear. Up south, you see, it's more to me. I don't see clear unless I'm here. Real it must be. That's up south. Like, who was expecting to get poetry recited to them on a construction site? Not me. And it was pretty good. It was, like, good poetry. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the fact that the kids are participating in the building of the school site where they'll be learning, that's a part of the philosophy behind Mini Wachoni. It's, like, aunties, uncles, parents. Like, we're all parents. (laughs) And we're all, like, like, you know, have our children who struggled in the school systems. And we're we're all saying, like, we're smart as hell. And we're educated up the wazoo, and we have degrees up the butt. Let's let's do it. (laughs) We already know this. We know their way. We know our way. Like, we can do it. That voice you just heard is Kimamila Locke. Kimamila is a veteran teacher with a master's in education, an activist, a mom, and more recently, a co-founder of the Maniwachoni Defenders of the Water School. She's part of a team of about six who've been working on this for years. Kimamila and Elena Eagleshield, we'll meet her later, have been leading the charge and have decades of experience between them as educators and as carriers of Lakota culture. And Minnie Wachoni really turns this idea of learning upside down. It was a dream that first formed five years ago during the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline, or as they call it, No Dapple when thousands of people lived in a big camp here to protest the pipeline. I feel like we had the real privilege of witnessing it at camp. I wish there was a way to translate Wo'unspe, because it's not education. Wo'unspe is a state of being and knowing, and you're learning. Like, you're becoming in a state of learning all the time. When we first met Kimimila early that morning, She pulled up in a car with a dashboard and back windshield entirely full of sage. And she had some behind her ear, too. She steps out of her car, pulls up her sunglasses, and starts laying out what we're going to be doing. She set up some meetings for us at the Earth Lodge on the school site, and people will be coming to meet us there over the next few days. She's wearing jeans, a blue t-shirt, and a hoodie. Her hair is pulled up in a clip, and even though she's dressed casually, she instantly commands attention. Yeah, she has this kind of seriousness to her, but she's also cracking jokes the whole time. Everyone had their own spoons in it. Spoons and forks, dig a hole. And after some time walking around the construction site and meeting people, 
Camila takes us into the Earth Lodge. So there's this horizontal log on the far side of the lodge. It's the first thing you see as you walk in and your eyes adjust from being outside to being inside. And it serves as a bench. It's where many people sit for interviews throughout our time there. Kim Amila tells us that this is where students will gather most days. And it does not look like any classroom I've ever been in. Me neither. Yeah, there are no desks, no chalkboards, no cubbies for backpacks. No lockers, no AC, no heat. No concrete walls either, or school bells. Kimimila tells us that instead, kids will fulfill an English credit with a prayer journey up to the Black Hills, or learn science collecting medicinal herbs in the surrounding areas. They'll earn a biology credit on a buffalo hunt and learn history from elders in the lodge. And students will also help design their own curriculum based on their interests. I want to go to this school. I completely agree. (laughs) And as we're admiring the construction and talking about all of it with Kimamila, these little kids show up with their teacher. One of them is playing a recorder. Another one is playing Uno. It was so cute. There's this little line of them walking into the Earth Lodge, and then they spread out all over and just started playing music and just, like, playing in the dirt in general. And everything they were saying was in Lakota. And Kimimila just lit up watching them. Wakaija, that's our word for children. It means, it means sacred beings. So these are the sacred ones. So how do you treat the sacred ones? What do you do for the sacred people, or the sacred beings? Definitely makes you look at them a little differently, even as they're being silly and playing. (laughs) I used to struggle with classroom discipline, like a lot. And then when I switched from calling students students to Trja, na Trushka, na Michincha, my child, my niece, my nephew, it all shifted in the classroom too. I'm, I'm their auntie. <laughs> you don't talk that way to your auntie. Kim Amila would know. She's been teaching for more than 20 years. Was in the system and I know of so many kids who have not made it through. Ooh, that makes my stomach hurt. So that's why, that's the why. You know, that's, the system isn't made for us. When she says that the system isn't made for Native kids, I mean, we have the receipts. And we've talked about a lot of this stuff on Code Switch before. Mm-hmm. Native students drop out of public schools at a rate of almost twice the national average. And for most of U.S. history, the government has actively been trying to erase Native identity. Like with residential schools. Also known as boarding schools. Established in the 1800s. Kids that attended those were punished for speaking their languages or openly practicing any of their culture. And then in 1883, the Code of Indian Offenses fully took away the First Amendment right to religious freedom for all Native people. So they went underground. Yeah, until 1978. That was the first time Native parents could choose legally not to send their kids to boarding schools. Thanks to the Indian Child Welfare Act. That same year, with the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, they got the right to practice their religion openly. Rights every American is supposed to have. So for this community, starting this school isn't just a matter of building a new space. 
building a school like this in a Native community... That is Native-run. ...with Native teachers... That teaches in Lakota and incorporates cultural practices... It's a huge deal. It's a matter of taking ownership of a culture, history, and way of being that was stripped away for hundreds of years. This school represents an effort to get back to those traditions. Five years ago, during the No Dapple movement, Native parents and teachers imagined a different model of how school could not suck for their kids. Through this school, we made it okay to just be who they were every day. After the break, how the Standing Rock movement showed the Lakota what sovereignty could look like. You guys ready to break the law with me? And how they're bringing that power to the classroom. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Best Fiends. Why put off having fun for that so-called free time you keep hearing about? You already do enough to earn it. Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle adventure game that gives you a little fiendish fun anytime, anywhere. Customize your team of characters and find even more ways to win with year-round events. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. Plus, get $5 of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Sequoia. Christina. Code Switch. After a full day at the build site for the mini Wachoni school, Camila Locke, one of the co-founders, offered to take us to the place where it all started, the fields where the pipeline protest movement took root. After all, the idea for the school didn't come out of nowhere. It started like so much of the energy and movement still happening on the res, when nations and allies from all over the country came together in Standing Rock five years ago. We said goodbye to everyone at the construction site, hopped in our car, and followed Kimamila for about an hour. The sun was low and the road was pretty empty, but it was kind of always empty. And eventually we pulled over on the side of the highway and parked. You guys ready to break the law with me? (laughs) Once we leave the road, we cross a downed wire fence and enter federal land. We had actually passed this area coming into Standing Rock, But we didn't know this was where it all went down five years ago. It looked so nondescript, just a big, wide, open field next to a bunch of other big, wide, open fields. Some hills in the distance. There was a river. We could hear lots of bugs and birds chirping. And it's really quiet, except for the occasional car that drives past us. But five years ago? So then, like, imagine, so, like, camped all the way to the edge of the water, and then... These rolling fields of red and yellow grass housed thousands and thousands of people from all over the world. They came to fight the building of a pipeline and to protect water rights. I remember when Camomila told us that. I tried to count how many people I had seen total on Standing Rock up until that point, and it was maybe 30, 35, thousands and thousands all on this same field is so hard to imagine. But it happened. Overnight protesters in North Dakota vowing they're not backing down after an evening of violent clashes with law enforcement. We're not going anywhere. We're cold, we're shaking, we're wet. We're in pain, but we're still here. 
flag road. That's where they put all their, their the streams of flags. That was like the main entrance. What they call Facebook Hill. That was Facebook Hill. That was the only point that we could get any access to our, our cell phones. <laughs> and then the school was like over, like in that area. Over that there. little dip right yeah. there. If you look at pictures, you see this wide open landscape covered in tents, cars, trailers. At its peak, it was North Dakota's 10th largest city, complete with a horse track, kitchens, medic tents, and a school, Maniwachoni. You got a glimpse of what happens when you put your minds together for the good of the kid, for the next generation. So now we just have to execute it. I wish I could take you all to that moment you just heard. We were standing with Kim and Mila in the middle of this wide open field. It's peaceful and quiet. And then this beat up pickup truck drives by, honking like mad. And the driver just raises his fist out the window towards us. It was like, yep, we're still fighting. We'll never forget that miraculous thing that happened here. And there's this feeling of taking that energy forward, too. The movement at camp brought people together from all over the world in solidarity. But it also connected people from around Standing Rock in a new way, like Kimi Mila and Elena Eagleshield. Elena is one of the six co-founders of the school. On our second day out at the construction site, Kimi Mila introduces us. She, She was the one that, like, a lot of the aunties and uncles were... You know, like as she was going around, they kind of had a lot of conversations and she pulled a lot of us in. Hey! Hey! That's exactly what happened. Yeah, so Elena Eagleshield. Elena is on the shorter side and full of smiles. She's also pregnant. When she comes to meet us at the Earth Lodge, she brings her husband and son along with her. She's splitting time between Washington State and South Dakota while she gets her Ph.D. in Indigenous Education and Health at the University of Washington. Hi! Sorry I'm late. I wanted to join you guys this morning, but it's just a lot going on. Um, my just had ultrasound. Yeah! Hey! Re- helping to rebuild the nation. Just kidding. Hey! Even though she and Kimamila grew up on Standing Rock and are both teachers... It wasn't really until the No Dapple movement that they reconnected. In 2016, Elena was a language specialist on Standing Rock. At the time, I was like, I don't know what to do. I feel like I have to be out there. So I took leave. And she headed to the Dakota Access site. Elena ended up getting arrested not long after. And she had to spend the night in jail, away from her family. When she tells us this story, she's sitting on a bench inside the Earth Lodge, Her young son stays close and holds on to her. She comforts him as he comforts her. Not long after she was arrested, some more people from Standing Rock set up camp. As the campsite grew into the hundreds and then thousands, Elena kept going there almost every day after work and eventually started organizing visits for students. After some time... More and more aunties and grandmas were like, hey, what about our kids? You know, we know that... 
the first thing the government comes after is our kids. It's it's almost you know it's end of August. School's gonna start. They're gonna want to take our make our kids go to school. So what do we do next? Elena and others didn't want their kids back in school, away from the movement where they were learning so much in real time about their culture. So she established a school on the Osheti Shakowi campsite where kids could learn side by side as the movement was unfolding around them. She helped parents fill out homeschool papers, something she already did for her kids. And she started to set up a curriculum they could follow. I was like so Western at the time because I was like, okay, 9 a.m. slot, got you down. (laughs) 10 o'clock, cool. Tuesday, cool. Never worked out that way. Oh my gosh. Eventually, students from all over the country who are participating in the movement ended up traveling between different tribes' camps to learn from elders and tribal members. They'd also go down to the water and pray every day. But even the students weren't ready for this new type of school. So through the school, we made it okay to just be who they were every day. Because even in the beginning, it was like everything was funny. You know, if we talked to Lakota, if we said a story, they're like, you don't, we don't talk to animals or we, that's not true. You know, they would say things like that. And then by like the first week, they were like asking to pray. Almost a year after the first people from Standing Rock decided to camp, the governor of North Dakota told water protectors they needed to leave. The movement lost. Yeah, I, I remember that day really clearly. I'd been following the movement for months along with other Native students at my college. And when people were forced to pack up in the snow, it was incredibly heartbreaking. And then construction for the pipeline just continued. And then in June 2017, oil started flowing through a completed pipeline. It's gone back and forth in the courts since. Ultimately, a judge ruled that the company behind the pipeline needed to complete a thorough environmental impact review, which they skipped the first time around, but that the pipeline could keep transporting oil in the meantime. I remember when President Obama halted construction on the project. Then when Trump came into office, his administration started it up again. And people were really hoping President Biden would reverse that. But he hasn't. It's with the Army Corps of Engineers now. And most people don't think about the pipeline fight as still happening in the Dakotas. But on the Standing Rock Reservation, it's very present. Mm -hmm. And it was during the weeks and months and years after what everyone thinks of as the movement that the ideas gradually took shape for the school that's coming together some 50 miles from the campsite. We just had to believe that there was spirits and this was real and the ceremonies that were happening and the prayers that were being put out were real and were there. And and so they and they always told us, too, like, it's not seeing is believing, it's believing is seeing. And sitting in the Earth Lodge with little kids running around us, we were starting to see it. I'm hoping to be like a translator for stuff that we're already doing. We're reclaiming our life ways by building this earth lodge, you know. We're reclaiming our language by just calling each other by kinship terms. We're reclaiming our ceremonial practices just by offering food and offering tobacco or or smudging whenever we get on the road or when we pray for somebody. And so I really do feel like, I don't feel like education is everything, but our education is, eh? If that makes sense. (laughs) But a lot of getting a school up and running 
is less exciting and more logistical. Kimi Mila and Elena have been working with other co-founders to write up a budget and secure their own funding. They don't want any state or federal funding, so some of that is coming from grants and private donations. Right now, they said they have about $200,000, which is a ton of money, but it's less than half of what they need to get the school going for the coming school year. So even though money is still a bit up in the air, there's a lot that is working. Yeah, they've figured out a system for granting middle and high school credits that works for them. And they've developed a two-year course that will focus heavily on Buffalo, and of course, Lakota language and traditions. Elena and others also wrote a book about their experience teaching at Standing Rock. And the founders have been reaching out to build a network of support and expertise. Educators and activists and funders who also focus on creating new education models for Native students. Elena, Kimamila, and the other four co-founders behind Miniwichoni really want this school to give students a place to feel safe but also challenged and fulfilled. But now the question is, what does that look like in practice? In many ways, the team has accomplished a lot of what they wanted to do. They presented their plan for the school to the tribal council, got approved for a 30-year lease on 40 acres of land. That's the land we visited that the Earth Lodges are now on. Mm-hmm. And they pulled their first students out of public school and are actually integrating their ancestral practices into their curriculum. Like, they recently took the students on a pilgrimage or prayer journey in the Black Hills to teach ceremonies and live history rather than just read about it. But one thing is still very up in the air. We ran into, you know, struggles like raising money and not having the state funds, the federal funds. We decided we don't want that because then that gives regulation. If we want to be sovereign, we have to have our own money. We have to raise our own money. The school still isn't technically open. Right now, these first few students are functioning with a modified homeschooling model in preparation for their official opening this fall. And for a while, Kimamila, Elena, and the other founders didn't quite know how to grade the students or prove they were meeting state standards. The state standards are the most basic. Like math, science, history. That's the most minimal. So, yeah, so this is a much higher standard, much higher education. Kimamila believes that her school will be going above and beyond those state standards. And now they're accredited through the Commission for Osheti Shakoi Accreditation. This commission works to offer a more culturally relevant education to Native kids. And they've set it up so other schools like Miniwachoni can also apply for accreditation. So it's essentially their version of a high school diploma. Exactly. It really looks like the school is becoming real. And they have a whole community behind them, making it happen. As we hang out at the site over two days, so many people drive up and stop by to visit. Almost like they can't believe it themselves. Council members, elders, even Camomila's mom hangs out for a few hours and supervises the build. They have so much to say about what it means to get this place up and running. That means that our, our, our language is going to thrive. That's Lonnie White Mountain Sr., the chairman of Bear Soldier District. Where the school is located. He's also the kid's grandfather. And he's excited to send his youngest son to the school when it opens to learn in Lakota. You know, I want him to grow up to be able to pass that on to his children. You know, so that's very important to me that he learns our ways. So many people on Standing Rock kept telling us over and over 
it's not just about a new way of learning or preserving their language even. It's about creating a whole new generation of resers. Here's Elena. We're all resers and to, for us to be like coming together for something like this, it's just, oh, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. So what's your hope for the, the next generation? What do you want your kids' generation to look like? Mm-hmm. For me, what was so pivotal about the Water is Life movement was that we got to experience things that we've always heard our, our elders talk about in like real time, in real life. But I, I remember thinking like, wait a minute, we don't have to ask for permission. You know, we could just do this. And that's, that's what I want for our kids moving forward. I want them to know that who they are is enough and know that what needs to be done in the communities is up to us. This question of what's next is one everyone's thinking about. And on that second day, when we got to talk with some of the students who will be going to school here, we asked them about their hopes for the future. What do you guys dream of? This could be like a job. This could be like a family. What, what are your dreams? They were all sitting in a line on the bench in the lodge and we were on the ground. And Alana started first, then their sister Chris, then Matthew and Quentin. I grew up in like, I was from house to house all the time. Like I I never had one secure home. I was always like moving around and then I just kind of built this anger up. And then I like found out like recently I really like to write poems and stuff. So then that's the way I release my anger. I hope I can like write more poems and then bring more awareness to Native Americans. After I graduate high school, I plan on going to Kansas University. And so after I graduate college, I always wanted to be a Native American author and talk about our culture in the books. After, I was like, all right, anything you could do at a skate park, basically. Like, as when I was a kid, everybody would go to the skate park, but now you only see, like, two kids there. Like, I'm, I'm more of actually going to, like, a college and then, you know, actually going out and then, like, doing good in the world and then giving back to the community and give more activities to do around the community, like how my parents are doing with the teen center and the school and everything. After a while, Chris, Quentin, Matthew, and Alana pile into the van they came in. Chris is on the volleyball team and can't be marked absent if she wants to play in the game later that afternoon. Precious stays behind, ready to work on the second Earth Lodge. Within two weeks of our visit, it'll be finished, right next to the first one. And in the meantime, word of this thing being built is spreading across the community, and more kids and community members are coming by and joining in. A movement, five years later, is still growing on Standing Rock. And that's our show. 
You can find more about this episode on our website, npr.org slash codeswitch. Special thanks to Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, who visited Standing Rock with us and helped us gather sound. Thank you also to Eric Whitney and Christine Trudeau for their extra ears. And thank you to Kimi Mila Locke, Elena Eagleshield, Memory, and Hoke Sheila White Mountain, and everyone we met on Standing Rock who generously shared their time. Though we didn't interview him for this story, Nick Estes' book... Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the long tradition of Indigenous resistance was an indispensable resource for us. This episode was produced by us and edited by Leah Donella and Steve Drummond. It was fact-checked by Nathan Pugh. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Jean Denby, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Jess Kung, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Summer Tamad, Kumari Devarajan, and Tinbeat Armyas. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. I'm Sequoia Carrillo. I'm Christina Kala. Hasta pronto. Bye, y'all.